It's the big news this morning. New Zealand will be the host of the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023 in a joint partnership with Australia. I mean, it's such an exciting opportunity. It's it's going to expose, I guess, women's football to this country. This will be the biggest sporting event that New Zealand has ever hosted. Th- this is amazing. Uh, in the World Cup for the women in France, 2019, there are over a billion viewers. It's huge. I don't think New Zealand has realised how big the Women's World Cup, a FIFA Women's World Cup is. So it's going to be huge in terms of the development and then the economic impact will be significant as well for both Australia and New Zealand. Here's what we've been told to expect when the Women's World Cup kicks off on July the 20th. A projected television audience of 1.2 billion plus Nearly 30,000 fans descending on us. Value to the economy of more than $200 million and a promised explosion in interest in women's football. But how do we know that? And can we really believe the figures? A lot of very shonky reports have been produced by economic consultancies justifying government subsidies for large-scale events. There's a long history of these. Academic economists are very skeptical of these kinds of papers, and especially of the method underlying them. You can be very accurate post-event. It's projecting it up front. That's more of a challenge, and that's about looking at historical data. And what about the intangibles? How do we put a dollar figure on those? We're going to be seeing the, the most amazing athletes and, and the most amazing skills. So it will mean so much to football in general, but also to women's football in particular. I'm Alexia Russell, this is The Detail, and today, magic numbers. The sort of numbers used to justify hefty government investment in events such as the last America's Cup. The cost-benefit analysis at a total cost of $200 million is, is, been, is positive. What does it say? How much do we get back for it? Uh, uh, between uh, uh, up to a billion dollars. Up to a billion? Up to a billion dollars of additional revenue to the country, yeah. That's not a bad return then, is mm. it? As Guyon Espiner said on RNZ's morning report back in 2018... That wouldn't be bad if it was true. We're going to be rich. Uh, <laughs> I think I think that's an overstatement. Uh, so, yeah, the minister said that the America's Cup will uh, help pay for nurses and, I guess, anything else that the government might be interested in. That's uh, completely false, uh, complete nonsense. In actual fact, the America's Cup staging during a worldwide pandemic lost the country $292.7 million. But hey, we won and we get to host all over again. Oh, wait, no, that's not happening either. Anyway, today I'm going to be talking to one man whose job it is to lure events to Auckland and another who pokes holes in the formulas and reports being used to justify spending money to make money. Eric Crampton is the chief economist at the New Zealand Initiative. He's the sceptic. More recently, practice in New Zealand has improved. The numbers on the more recent FIFA um, expenditures are not nearly as bad as for some prior events. But we can still wonder about these things. So historically, the numbers used to justify these kinds of events have been based on what's called economic impact assessment or economic impact evaluation. 
That kind of work has no credibility among academic economists, but is very good at producing very large numbers. The simplest explanation I've ever seen for it comes from economist Stephen Gordon, who's a prof at Laval, and he there described it as being something like, take the value of all the costs of the event, take the value of all of the benefits of the event, add them together, multiply them by two, and then you get an economic impact assessment number. Now, it's not a number that's economically meaningful in any real sense. It doesn't tell you about the benefits. It just tells you some measure of the quantum of spending that happens while generally pretending that economic activity wouldn't have been happening in the absence of the event. So when I taught at Canterbury, I lectured there for a little over a decade. I would tell my 200-level students uh, things to watch for in these kinds of cost-benefit studies. And I'd give a silly example of imagine a government subsidy for a 100-foot-tall statue of me in Cathedral Square in Christchurch, because I was at Canterbury. Now let's try and come up with an economic impact assessment that would justify this obviously stupid project. Mm -hmm. And we'd go through the ways of doing that. And you'd see them all the time in studies that are trying to justify, in, in the United States, lots of money going into stadiums or into things like Olympics bids. There's been work published in the American Economic Review, our flagship journal, showing just how terrible government uh, subsidies for the Olympics wind up being. The Olympic Committee plays cities off against each other. They all expect that they're going to be getting large benefits. They never pan out. You have something of a winner's curse in it, where the high bidder is the one who is most unrealistic in their expectations of just how good the thing is going to be, and they always wind up disappointed. You know, though, I went to the London Olympics in 2012 and couldn't believe how fantastic London had scrubbed up. Couldn't believe how much cleaner the trains were, how friendly the people were. The whole place, it was just a joy to be there. And it's definitely put London on our radar for future visits. Now, is it, but is, so is there some, not some truth in, in that sort of experience that I had, that people will go there because they're drawn by an event and you know, there's good vibes, you, you tell other people how great it was, more people come. Is there a kernel of justification in these justifications? Well, I'm not saying that there are no benefits from these kinds of events, but the benefits tend to be overestimated relative to the costs. So there are all kinds of things that get done around the time of one of these events, some of which probably should have been done anyway and would pass cost-benefit assessment on their own grounds, even if the event hadn't happened. So those kinds of investments you should just be making, regardless of whether the event is taking place. Okay, so this is like we're talking about when Peter Blake's brought the America's Cup home and we cleaned up the waterfront. That's something that should have happened years before then. Uh, potentially, yeah, or other investments in the facilities around it. If those investments made sense on their own grounds, then that's great. But there's also risk of over-investing in capacity. So if you'll remember during the Rugby World Cup, uh, John Key was pretty insistent that uh, Dunedin spend an awful lot of money on a stadium that was going to be a lot bigger than they needed most of the time. And the city wound up in pretty severe financial difficulties as a consequence of it. It's almost like buying a stretched limo for a family people mover. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There might be one day in a century that you're going to use the thing. It might be better to just rent it for that event rather than build a facility able to handle that all of the time. What about the argument that if you build it, they will come? <laughs> well, it made for a great movie, didn't it? Uh, People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. So if you believe in ghosts and ghost baseball players, then that's great. But if you build it, they will come. That 
that kind of philosophy has underpinned a lot of economic impact analyses justifying stadium expenditures, but they don't bear up. So there's been other work looking at, for example, when uh, baseball went on strike. So you see all... (laughs) This one's just hilarious. So you see all of these studies that say, oh, here's all these massive benefits that come to our town because we get to have baseball games or we because we get to host the preseason and the warm-ups. Well, baseball went on strike, right, in, in a few, uh, about a decade ago. So they looked then at, well, what happened to the towns where they were always claiming these giant benefits from baseball? Like, did the town collapse when baseball went on strike? Like, no, nothing happened. So... The boosters always try and put the rosiest glow on these mm-hmm. things. They always overestimate. And, like, who could blame them? Like, how can you blame the consultants for putting up complete rubbish reports when governments are happy to pay for those reports or stadiums are happy to pay for them and governments to pretend to take them seriously? Of course they will produce rubbish if there's demand for rubbish mm-hmm. and people are happy to not look at the things too closely. Okay, let's go through some of those justifications and why they're rubbish then. Estimates on the number of people who will come into a city because of an event. What's wrong with that? People do come to events. Absolutely. You just need to be a little bit careful around it. So one thing that you can worry about is that New Zealand is a place that's on a lot of people's sort of bucket list. It's their dream to someday come to New Zealand. If they come to New Zealand for an event, is it because of the event? Or is it because they had always wanted to come to New Zealand? They come here to time it with the event and it's a trip that would have happened anyway sometime in the next decade. That can be the case, in which case you would need to worry about whether it's displacement of actual visits rather than an increase in numbers. There's also the effect of crowding out. It's been a problem during previous Rugby World Cups where other visitors might be put off from coming in because the hotels are booked out. Uh, If they don't really like the kinds of crowds that show up for rugby matches, they might want to wait for a different time when it's more sedate. So it'll push other visits around. So you have to be careful with that. Okay, so I'm here in the country. I can't get into my local cafe because it's full of tourists. Good or bad thing? Money earning or not money earning? Well, it's good to one extent. It'll be good for the cafe owners. They might be able to put their prices up a bit and make up for some of the horrible losses that they incurred during COVID when we couldn't have any tourists at all. But you worry as well then where a lot of these facilities are having trouble already in finding staff whether they will be able to actually increase capacity to meet the demand that comes through. So if the numbers wind up being as high as expected, is it actually possible to expand the kinds of services that tourists use and the tourists demand without drawing work out from other areas? So if you start thinking about the benefits of these increased economic activity, some of that's going to be at the expense of other activity that can't happen because we've bid workers away from it into the subsidized sector. What is international profile worth, or is it worth nothing? It would be worth something, but it's hard to put a figure on it. There's always estimates where they try and figure out, well, what's the equivalent ad spend? So if the country had to go and make tourism advertisement expenditures equivalent to the coverage that you get from an event, how much would that cost? But you have to be careful with that, too, because often, like if you're watching the FIFA World Cup or the Rugby World Cup or any other event... Well, maybe a little bit different for the America's Cup because you'd see some of the sweeping scenery. But if it's a a camera shot of a football stadium, I don't know that it's that different from a football stadium anywhere else in the world and does anything like what a tourism campaign might do.
I'm not sure about that. You know, we've had GDP and similar formulas measured for major events for a number of years. Uh, the Women's Rugby World Cup last year, we had estimated um, a GDP forecast of 3.5, but in actual fact it generated 16.6 million um, from the economic analysis that we provided. Chris Simpson is the head of major events for Tataki Auckland Unlimited. It's his job to lure the big gigs to the city and to get homegrown events established. Essentially we, we see incredible benefits for the city to host major events and, and part of that is to um, attract visitors into Auckland to spend money. Um, part of it is to maximise the profile and exposure major events can offer in promoting the city and then all of the social benefits, all of the intrinsic stuff that people actually feel proud about being part of the city when you do have an amazing major event in town. There's a lot of different reasons. Yeah, okay, so you have to spend money to bring the money in. When you're putting your proposals up to the council, how do you justify it? What sort of formula do you use to justify bringing events in? We have a number of key outcomes that we're looking at um, from identifying and trying to determine potential visitor nights that it can generate and GDP that it can generate, but also looking at ensuring we've got strong Māori outcomes and sustainability outcomes, um, customer satisfaction with Aucklanders attending. So there's a variety of measurements we look at. So some events might, say a Pacifica or some of our cultural festivals, might not generate the kind of GDP that a Rugby World Cup might generate, but they have really strong social benefits and outcomes. Whereas there's other major events that we look at that it's very much around what it can provide on a return and as far like as money wise, nights. yeah, generate yeah. generate um, business for you know hospitality, mm. the accommodation sector, that sort of thing. So okay, but when you when you very... put that to the council to say, please give us this money so that we can yes. lay it all out to the publicity, what formula do you use? Uh, Well, we basically do some estimations of likely visitor nights for that event, looking at historical data. So we might look at, uh, say for example, I did the bid for the FIFA Women's World Cup. When I did the original feasibility plan on the FIFA Women's World Cup, as far as identifying projected visitor numbers, we were able to look at previous FIFA Women's World Cup events from around the world, looked at uh, the, the international visitors that attended those events, looked at what their markets or the countries that they came from were, how long on average they stayed, looked at the previous um, event reviews of those FIFA Women's World Cups to do some projections on potential visitor nights, potential number of visitors, potential length of stay that they would have, the look at the spend that FIFA might spend on previous World Cups to determine and get some sort of idea based on you know sort of substantiated data. Mm. I think the challenge, that, you know, for, for the government, we've always been able to look at the big one-off events because you can look at historical data. I think where it gets more tricky is when you're creating a new major event. You don't have that data, so that gets more difficult, but it doesn't mean, you know, you can't do some projections. Okay, so you're looking, though, at foreign countries where it's not such a great distance to come to an event. Do you work out 
sort of which teams have the biggest following, who's likely to come down here, you know, is yes, that... actually, yeah, that's yeah. a good question. We, an example was um, assessing the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2015 in Canada, and 30,000 Americans went to Canada to watch the FIFA Women's World Cup. Now, we kind of assumed during that process that they probably just did that because it was easy for them to drive. But when the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2019 was hosted in France, 30,000 Americans turned up for that and they had to fly. So so we can sort of look at those priority markets and look at the trends, but you know, we you know, in our assessment of the FIFA Women's World Cup and the number crunching, we were able to say, well on average, America, the, the football team there tends to attract more fans that will travel than perhaps China might. So they have a fairly dedicated fan base. I mean, they are number one in the world. So they they sure do. And then mm-hmm. there's some teams that don't have any fan base. So you can. So of course, when the FIFA draw came out, we got very excited. When we saw the US drawn for Auckland, we knew that based on track record, well, that's a good thing for us because on average, we'd be expecting far more Americans to be coming than perhaps the Dutch. The pre-sale period has been massively successful. It's blown everyone's expectations out of the water. We sold more tickets in the first 24 hours than they sold in the entire pre-sale period leading into France in 2019. The early economic impact studies uh, forecast an economic impact of $200 million uh, of 25,000 international visitors. We're going to recut those numbers based on the phenomenal growth since that was done. So I think uh, New Zealand hosting the USA is, uh, is going to be a good thing uh, for the economics. They have the largest travelling supporter base. So the, the people we speak to in the US are saying they could bring anywhere between 20 and 40,000 supporters alone with them. So, uh, look, it's going to be huge. You know what your budget is, you know what FIFA's contributing, you know if, how many Aucklanders attend an event, but how many New Zealanders come from outside of Auckland through your ticketing strategy, and then you also know how many international visitors are coming, again, through taking your ticketing analysis. So you can be very accurate post-event. It's projecting it up front that's more of a challenge, and that's about looking at historical data. Because there are some pretty big assumptions made, aren't there? I mean, you know, the spend per visitor figure, for example, I mean, they may not spend X amount each. They may stay with friends and not at hotels, they may spend two hundred dollars on a possum fur jacket, but actually the shopkeeper only makes a ten percent profit on that. I mean, how do you narrow those figures down so that they are yeah. realistic? We um, so we use companies that specialise in that. They have um, researchers out there during an event, actually conducting research on, you know, on who's coming, what they spend. So. We, we measure that regularly, um, certainly the research companies do for us. Um, it's When you're delivering an event, you need to know who your audience is, you need to know where they come from, you, that helps you develop your marketing strategy. If you don't have that kind of information, then you're, you are, it's, it is a bit of a, bit of a uh, thumb suck, but delivering major events, if you're not measuring who's coming, on average, how long they're staying, you know, for example, the World Masters Games, we had really good data that on average all the international visitors came to New Zealand for 18 days of which they spent 10 days competing and on average eight days traveling around the country spending money their average um, spend was slightly higher than perhaps other events because they're all a little bit older with a bit more money so we're able to monitor and measure that versus perhaps other major events that the audience is slightly different. Several factors are about to rain on Auckland Unlimited's parade when it comes to events however The council's CCO is about to lose 200 jobs in a budget-slashing move. There are no new events planned for the city beyond August next year because the government's regional events fund is about to run out. 
And worldwide competition for these big events is heating up. It's getting more and more competitive to win those and the rights fees that these big international rights holders, the likes of you know, the, the FIFAs and the rugby's and the Cricket World Cups and so forth, those fees are going more and more. Um, so cities around the world, including Australia and countries around the world, are putting more money into major events, not less. Does that um, mean it's not as worth it for us? It's becoming more competitive to win. So for us to be able to win on a global stage, we're going to need to actually, you know, the competition to win those events because all of the countries realise, and cities, that major events is a genuine multiplier. It generates and it helps with economic recovery. It's no coincidence that post-lockdown, all of the Australian states have increased their major events investment significantly. So I guess if you're running a business and you're under financial pressure, the bit that you don't cut out is the bit that makes you the most money and makes the most profit. Generating revenue for the city or the country is just one component of what major events do and and uh, probably if anything the Australians value major events far more than we do and all those other aspects. Tourism New Zealand couldn't pay for a two billion TV audience that the FIFA Women's World Cup's going to be providing. And then there's stuff that can't be measured. The number escalation of young girls wanting to play football off the back of the FIFA Under-17 World Cup was amazing. They needed to create new competitions, they needed to run summer competitions for girls because there was so much happening in winter. And that was off the back of an age group um, Women's World Cup. Can you imagine what hosting the FIFA Women's World Cup on our shores are going to do to inspire young girls? Same with the Rugby World Cup last year. The vibe that young girls actually get inspired to to want to play sport again. Hard to put a value on that. I know it's not all about GDP, but we've got GDP and then there's all of those other benefits. So suddenly the football clubs uh, this year will have far greater participation numbers. Their membership will go up, so they'll become a bit more sustainable as a club. Their grounds have been improved, which means they've got better quality facilities. So you know, it's a multiplier effect of Mm. some of those other kind of benefits that, again, we don't really, hard to place a number on that. I would struggle to to a bean counter to explain that value, but um, yeah, we can't, we can't underestimate that sort of stuff. Here's that bean counter again. Eric Crampton says the World Cup's maths is in the risky zone. You'd also worry a little bit about just the margin that's put in there. So it's a 1.2 to 1 ratio. Are there other things that the government isn't spending money on that would have more than a 1.2 to 1 ratio? You start wondering about the Act budget, for example. And if you start thinking that way, some of the curmudgeonliness starts getting a little bit more justifiable. It's like, well, isn't there more important things for the government to be spending money on? Even though this has a positive benefit-to-cost ratio, mightn't other things have had an even bigger benefit-to-cost ratio? What are we forgoing here? If ever a country and a city needs to actually be rolling out some pretty cool major events and feeling good about where they come from and the city they live in, that's now. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Rangi Powick. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Chris Simpson and Eric Crampton. Kakite anō.